Hey, good evening, and welcome to the Comedy Experience Graphic Novel of the Month Club uh, for the month of uh, April, because it's 420. Um, uh, and, and, and for the first time in, in a while, uh, we're back live. So, well, you hear them, right? Like, it's pretty cool. We're back live. I'm, I'm pretty fucking excited. Uh, so, uh, so here we are. Uh, it's the Comedy Experience Ma uh, Masterpiece um, Club, uh, and, and this is a truly... a perfect example of why we have this club. It's the Fabulous Free Freak Brothers um, in Idiots Abroad, and we are very, very, very lucky to be um, joined here by Mr. Paul Mavridis. Hello, everyone. Uh, Paul, I'm really, I'm really glad that you were able to take the time and, and talk to us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, my first question is, is pretty much always the same question to everybody, because I just, I love this question. Um, why comics? Of, of all the different things you could be doing, and you do do a, in a lot of different art forms, what is it about comics that attracts you, that excites you, that thrills you, that makes you want to bend over the table and, you know, and, and do that for eight or 10 or 12 hours at a time? Well, at, at the time I was doing them, it was the fact that it was an accessible uh, medium yeah. that, that was cheap and affordable uh, and <clears throat> had no editors. Unlike a lot of other types of comics, uh, the underground scene uh, creators are mostly left to their own uh, to to choose what they want to write, and uh, the editing comes in the, where the publisher either says yes or no. Right. Right. right so, right. but uh, otherwise, you're on your own uh, creating your work. Yeah. Like a, a like a novelist deciding yeah. what they're going to sure. write a novel or a short story about, and yeah. and then they try to find the audience. Right, 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 right. Though right. so a novelist, you know, once even if even if they find their audience, then it goes through a whole editing process. Sure, you know, where the, right. But you can't really do that with comics because no. you know you have to redraw it then. No, uh, rare instances. There's there's sometimes some emergency where something has to be changed. Uh, I don't think I've ever had to do that, yeah, but yeah. but it's been known to happen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it really is accessible. All you need is like a pencil and a piece of paper and an idea. You don't even need to know how to draw. Yeah. Uh, all you need to do is know how to communicate uh, with with and have something to say or, or not say, depending on how clever you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was what were the first comics you remember reading? Oh, the first comic book I ever bought, I think, was uh, back in the mid nineteen fifties, uh, and it was a that I actually picked out from a rack and yeah. went to a counter with a dime and, and put it down. It was the world's finest. Oh wow. And uh, all I could remember from childhood was that it had a a, a Batmobile on the cover, uh -huh. but I knew what year it was, so uh -huh. I I tracked down the issue. I can't remember the number of it, but you know, it's like oh, sure enough. <laughs> so, uh, but I I didn't get into collecting at that point. I yeah. think I was in the first grade. Yeah. Dimes weren't easy to come sure. by in those uh, for that age group back then. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't really uh, get into it properly until uh, two years later, when a neighbor of my parents, where uh, we were staying at my grandparents' house, who was actually a, a 
neighbor of my grandfather. It's an old retired guy, and he had had uh, grandkids of his own in the 40s and 50s. Wow. <clears throat> Two boys, they come over and visit him, and uh, he'd take them to the drugstore, and they'd come back with armloads of comic yeah. books, and they'd read them at, at, at grandpa's and then leave them there. And this it was just a friendly old guy, uh, you know, like kids, yeah. you know, it, the way you're supposed to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got to read his comic books and, uh, and there were ECs and there were golden age things of, and all kinds of genres and crime comics yeah. and just anything you could think of. Uh, just one knockout thing after another. And one day uh, he just said, you like them so much here. They're yours. And he gave me like, Wow. Two cartons of these wow. things. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, that was all it took. I, yeah. I was sold. What a, what a great way to, to sort of get that whole breadth of material, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing, you know, there was Silver Age, beginning of Silver Age at that point, but nothing could touch what, those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and whoever heard of them, yeah. not me. Yeah. Certainly, uh, it, I immediately ran into trouble with my dad, though, who uh, was raised in an era where he was taught that any adult uh, that read comic books was an idiot. Mm -hmm. So, so he was hostile to them, even though he had his own opportunity to become a comic book artist himself in high school, and yeah. he turned it down. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, all was well and good until uh, a year or two later when I came home from school ready to dive back into these books I had already read a million times. Yeah. And they were gone. And I went to my mother and said, where are my comic books? And she said, you never had any comic books. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a that's uh, a real way to a fixation. Yeah, they did basically. Then and there, I swore that I was going to grow up and become a cartoonist <laughs> just to get even. Yeah, and, yeah. and and who knew I did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. So, um, did you were you making comics like you know as a school child or no? I I was like. I was teaching myself how to draw by copying like newspaper comics yeah. that I liked, like uh, Walt Kelly and, right. and uh, oh, Prince Valiant mm -hmm. and the hard, the hard stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a bit more detailed than now uh, and bigger, uh, not as big as they were back in uh, physically in the forties, yeah. but uh enough and, yeah. and my father would give me tips on how to draw and, okay uh, so it wasn't all hostility right, 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 right. uh they just wanted me to be a lawyer or, right. uh, or a senator or something yeah, yeah, and then yeah. i could be an artist as a well-rounded you know sure uh, high-ender yeah, yeah but uh no that didn't turn out either yeah so so, so like did you go to college? Did you? <clears throat> what, what was? How, how did you? How did you start drawing them? I guess is where I want to get to. Hmm. Uh, well, no, I didn't go to college. Okay. I thought I was going to go to college, yeah. but by the time I was uh, 
18 and graduated from high school, my father and I were at such, uh, such ad, uh, political ends that yeah. we like fought viciously for several years about literally anything you could think of. Right. If I said, nice, uh, nice blue sky today, you know, like, no, it's not, you know, uh, or it would be in reverse, no matter who was saying what. But the upshot was, uh, instead of uh, getting to go on to university, on my 18th birthday, I was taken out to a steak dinner, handed a $20 bill, and told to move out of the house that night. Wow. So, uh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Wow. <laughs> so what did you do? Uh, slept in the park that night, and then uh, went to a friend's house and... Uh, Covered my eyes and threw darts at a map of the United States to figure out where I was going to move to. And fortunately, threw a, a dart and it hit Boston instead of the middle of the Atlantic, yeah, yeah. Uh, which happened on my first two attempts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hitchhiked to Boston with $75 and uh, got... <laughs> hired as a youth consultant to a marketing director and was given an office and a secretary but nothing to do except tell the guy how lousy all his ideas were oh, wow. <laughs> and 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 then i had to move back to ohio to deal with uh draft like uh, -huh. uh which i did yeah and somewhere along the way, I just kept drawing and doing art. I had been drawing and since I was a kid, and it just kind of came natural to me. I'd already, at that point, been reading the uh, under, underground, you know, uh, beginnings of underground comics uh, in, in underground papers and all the alternative stuff that was developing and like I said, it was accessible. Anybody could do it if you could figure out how to do it. Sure. <clears throat> and I was always my harshest critic. So when I didn't think I was good enough, I didn't try to like force my way in and, and get stuff printed. Yeah. And and started, uh, you know, uh, learned along the way. Uh, worked for underground papers, learned about how to uh, public publish a, a paper and what went into that and darkroom information yeah. and just kept picking things up as I went along. Yeah. And it wasn't till I, I knew I had to move here if I wanted to, uh, wanted to actually do comics uh, because to meet these people, sure. otherwise I was in the middle of nowhere where uh, hardly anybody even sold the stuff. Right. Uh, so I did that. I yeah. moved to Berkeley, uh, started hanging out, uh, meeting all the underground people and, and regular people too. I'm one of the rare uh, underground guys that actually read mainstream comic books mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and found some of them of interest. So, uh, so eventually I uh, uh, hooked up with Jay Kinney and uh, we pitched a project to rip off press for cover up lowdown series of uh, cartoon panels uh, gags about con actual conspiracies yeah. with references and all that and uh, that came out and 
just kept doing them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Anarchy Comics that Jay edited yeah. followed, and uh, eventually Gilbert asked me to help uh, work on the Creek Brothers. Yeah, trip. yeah. I want I want to go there, but let me let me back up just a little because I really want to understand kind of how like if it was syndication or how like what was the network of alternative newspapers like back in those days uh you know certainly by the time i came along in doing comics you know in the 80s uh you know it, the, there was the guardian the weekly things like it was fairly established but it was it was also seemed like it was pretty rigid whereas back in those days it kind of seemed like it was the wild west to me is that is that accurate at all a little bit i mean any again it was like anybody could do it they yeah. uh, uh, if you had something to say uh the means to turn it into something physical uh, a printed thing wasn't that remote there weren't xerox machines yet but there were mimeograph machines right, right. and other types of primitive uh technology where yeah. one could put together the zine and yeah. in fact that's how zines became sure. birthed uh so in high school you know the kids would take journalism class and yeah. learn how to do a paper and then we'd go off and start our own you know underground high school yeah. newspaper yeah. uh with the material the teachers wouldn't let us print right uh so so that was a curve but still all disconnected but even so at that point i was starting to see the work of people by like spain and yeah. uh in underground comics and and all and, like things like yellow dog and, and all the tabloids and it was all hit or miss uh depending you know if you were a cartoonist in a city you do cartoons for the paper in your city, yeah. but uh, the only way people in other cities saw them was through a network of head shops that would carry these right, right, right. these materials. So there was that cross traffic, and people would just borrow material from each other, but it wasn't organized. Right. Uh, when I moved to, uh, I moved from Boston back to Akron, and then after I had dealt with the draft, I desperately wanted to leave Akron again because who wouldn't and uh, headed west and uh, got as far as Tucson, Arizona, where I joined up with a community newspaper there called the New Times, okay. which eventually grew into a horrible corporation that ate all the alternative newspapers right, in, in right. America and destroyed them. But at that time, it was an actual collective newspaper. Yeah. And uh, about a year or two into that, um, there were probably at that point uh, at least several hundred healthy underground newspapers yeah. in the United States printing alternative, you know, real news and alternative uh, material uh, at a starting to almost be a professional level. Yeah. Uh, but all disorganized, like I said, scattered everywhere. So uh, a bunch of people decided to hold a convention in Boulder, Colorado in 1973. And it attracted, I think, about uh, hundreds of people from different newspapers every uh, all across uh, the U.S. And uh, plans were 
you know, now that everybody's meeting face to face, uh, syndicates, you know, were formed. Let's yeah. let's trade material yeah. and with each other and yeah. get this going. And one of the uh, things that fed this was a ripoff press at that point uh, was still was publishing comics, but you know they had an issue. They uh, Gilbert uh, was somebody who was a dedicated cartoonist and and was thinking along lines of how do you make this work? How do you uh, how can people earn a living doing this sure. uh, with this weird material? And uh, so ripoff press uh, was uh, in touch uh, with. Uh, a lot of a lot of the papers because they print the freak brothers for right. one thing right and so uh, uh i'm not sure who is behind it but a scheme was uh was created where uh ripoff press would have a a syndicate that offered comic material on a weekly basis to newspaper underground newspaper and alternative clients yeah and the cartoonists would be basically paid to produce something once a week. It gave them a short deadline, yeah. uh, and they they would produce work that could then be collected yeah. uh, in a book uh, and published and already paid for. Yeah. So uh, and so the books would actually come out yeah. on a schedule and everything, and it and it worked. So I kind of. Jay Kinney and I slipped ourselves into that stream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because otherwise uh, it was a whole different game. Uh, the, the underground press was laissez-faire to a large extent. Sure. You know, deadline. What's that? Yeah. You know, you you do your book, and when you get thirty-two pages, you bring it in. Yeah. yeah. And then the publisher decides whether they're going to print it, and if they do, they just print it. And and then say okay we got this you know they don't there's no advanced sales there's no promotion there's no nothing except the material to sell itself uh, that works a little bit but if you want a real business that you that's not going to blow up in your face you want something more stable yep, and, and this was the way to do it yeah. one of the ways uh, you know it kind of came apart. And it was abandoned too when the number of those papers began dropping and sure. they became more. The alternative press supplanted the underground press, and then even the alternative press became more mainstream. Yeah. So, th so they no longer uh, wanted these, you know, weird hippie, right. anarcho anything right. goes stuff. Uh, right. They, so you had uh, different features and comics that came up but it, it i mean it seemed to me like the freaks was pretty popular they were extremely popular time, right? uh, although i remember at one point uh you know it, the, the politics were always uh, evolving too yeah. so what wild what was wild humor a year before might suddenly become unpalatable to to, to people sure uh, or at least some groups of people. And uh, Gilbert did a, a long, not a graphic novel, but an extended story in, in one page uh, 
segments about the Freak Brothers returning to their homes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in one one week story, uh, it was Fat Freddy returning to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And before he gets back to his parents' house, he meets a, a, a teeny bopper, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an underage teeny bopper. And she picks him up takes him back home uh, and they take a bath together and uh, with the rest left to your imagination. But it turns out that she's his little sister uh, who's grown up since the time he remembers her being little when he was uh, thrown out of the house. Uh, So ha ha, you know, uh, but uh, it outraged a lot of people sure. and and in fact yeah. uh the women and, and the paper i worked on yeah. like killed the freak brothers off right right because of that so uh gilbert kind of uh backed away from that type of material yeah. after that but you know uh, and did other stuff that was like you know probably better than than staying in that direction would have sure, led to sure sure so when he asked you to um, to be an assistant on on Freaks, what was this? This was like seventy seven, seventy eight. Okay, okay. Um, what I mean, what what did that entail? What, what how did how, what was the breakdown of, of work and and how things flowed and oh, the first couple of stories. Uh... Well, Gilbert's method of working wasn't, almost nobody at Underground's worked like Marvel uh, method or or factory method. Uh, And people had a varying approach, individual approach to their work. But Gilbert was always pretty loose about that. But the first couple of things uh, he had me work on, I I was being tried out. you know, it was it was clear. Uh, so I was engaged to work on the art and mm-hmm. and fill stuff and do mm-hmm. do uh, you know char- other characters in the story. Gilbert had written the whole thing by himself, done all the lettering, and and you know there was a, it wasn't like ruling panel borders yeah. or anything it was more you know it really was drawing and but but i wasn't really inking his drawings right. uh, he'd indicate a doodle with a doodle uh, mostly sometimes a little bit more detail yeah. and the, enough to give me a direction yeah. and we'd be working side by side right. so if i had a question i could just ask him yeah, yeah, yeah. or or pencil something and show him and go how about this yeah 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 uh, and it went back and forth, and and you know I put in extra, I worked extra hard, and he eventually began to uh, entrust me to do more and more divided work. Yeah. But over all those years, uh, the one thing that uh, we we kept Gilbert doing consistently was all the lettering, that the word balloons and everything, because. Uh, no matter what, people were, uh, they wouldn't know why, you know, but if it wasn't his handwriting, it didn't feel right. Hmm. I can see uh, that. They didn't, didn't, couldn't think about it, couldn't tell you what was bothering them, but yeah. it would be that. It didn't seem right. Right. Like it was really him. 
if if the lettering was different. So that was consistent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the other uh, stop was in my direction was I do all the color, if yeah. there was color. Yeah. So, uh, but pretty much everything else was broken down, you know, uh, to where, you know, we couldn't really sort out yeah. uh, completely what what each of us did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're, so you're pitching ideas just as much then? Yeah, or kicking them around, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, or, or yeah. having a starting yeah, yeah. point and, and riffing off of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 we, we shift gears uh, depending on what was going on. Uh, Gilbert was living in San Francisco uh, when I started working with him. But uh, shortly after that, uh him uh, his wife uh, Laura and Gilbert uh, they decided to move to Europe and move to London at first uh and Gilbert was supposed to like send stuff back and feed uh, you know feed the production line and yeah. but that didn't seem to be happening once once he was gone and then on a visit he came back and it was i can't really really totally remember how this happened step by step but we decided to bring dave sheridan back in and gilbert was going to go back to europe uh this time uh moving from london to uh barcelona and our plan was dave and i would do the art and Gilbert would write the stories and letter them and send us the lettering back. And Dave and I would do the strips. Right. And that worked for a few single page stories. Yeah. <laughs> and then we didn't hear from them. And we didn't hear from them. And uh, in a mercenary self-serving moment of desperation, uh, I thought, I'd like to go to Europe. I've never been to Europe. How can I go to Europe? And I, said, I know. I'll go in and tell uh, Fred, the president of Ripoff Press, that if they send me to Europe, I'll write stories with Gilbert and bring them back for me and Dave. And then I thought, well, this is like absurd. I'll be thrown out of his office. So I went in the next day and, and, and pitched it anyway. And, and instead of being thrown out and said, what a scam artist, uh, he said, when can you leave? <laughs> and uh, uh, I was the delay. I didn't even have a passport. My scheme raced ahead <laughs> of practicality. <laughs> well, but soon I found myself in Barcelona and uh, for six weeks and uh, we wrote a pile of stories and uh, Gilbert lettered him and I brought him back and we were doing that very thing until Dave got sick. Uh, uh, he had a backache, had it checked out and it was endemic cancer. And he was gone shortly after that. Wow. He, had, he had apparently been sick for a while without even knowing it. So. Uh, Gilbert and Laura uh, kind of ditched Barcelona, came back, was still planning on uh, returning to Europe, uh, but had to tidy up affairs in 
San Francisco to do that. Uh, and uh, before they left, uh, we shifted over to, well, now what? Uh, we can't we can't do do our old plan. We need a new plan. What should we do? And uh, Gilbert asked me what I like to draw, and I said pretty much anything except the Freak Brothers spool table. I'm really tired of drawing their spool table. So let's get them out of the living room and and see what happens. Because they almost never go out except to score dope. So we put them on planes, took them to the airport yeah. and put them on planes without knowing what was going to happen to them and yeah. at, set, all. at all. And wow. that was the beginning of this, this, uh, yeah. uh book. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, and it started, uh, print in, in ripoff comics. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it, our plan was going to be initially to serialize it in ripoff comics. It was coming out as a regular, periodic uh, comic periodical at yeah. that point probably four times a year or something yeah like something like that yeah. but uh i forget the reason uh it wasn't working out uh but it's still it still produced like the first issues yeah. uh worth of, of pages yeah to put out uh and then we just shifted over to just working on the story yeah proper and i find myself re returning to europe every year and a half to two years and and for a period of uh, at least a couple of months yeah uh where i'd stay stay with gilbert and yeah. we would work intensely on... yeah. um uh, uh ripoff comics was magazine format and right not, and not comic book format. right um did that change how you you guys thought about the page or thought about the construction of the story or do you see what I mean? Like uh, just the different, the extra space. No, yeah. uh, we just, we just uh, dropped it into that, yeah. that space yeah. and made bigger, smaller margin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause the end point we, we, we was always going to be the comic book. Yeah. And, and, this long story you know we knew it was going to be three issues long and so we felt safe just rolling dice with our eyes shut for the first issue because because uh -huh. we could set up enough uh, you know a juggling act by just throwing a bunch of stuff in the air and then, sure. then giving us time to figure out how to turn it into a pattern uh -huh. as it came down um, but it gets denser and denser and denser as the story goes along. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we developed it. We weren't just like, uh, you know, surfing the top level of it. And, and you know, it became pretty clear to us after uh, halfway through where, what we were doing and where it was going. Right. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun uh, doing this stuff. And uh, the time spent sitting side by side working would get us to the point where I'd feel comfortable about like going back halfway around the world to like finish off pages and right, things. Right. And my approach to the material right from the start was, was to avoid it looking like a jam, uh, you know, like you'd see in those zap comics jams where everybody's just working out in their own style uh, uh, I, I, I 
I was a Freak Brother fan before I was a creator of them, uh, a creator working on them. So I, I uh, tried to do what I, I, I wanted to read, which was a seamless Freak Brothers story. It didn't, it wasn't going to look exactly like Gilbert working on his own, because uh, nobody can really counterfeit uh, him or the way he thinks. But I could, I tried to merge what I was doing and, and adopt to him. Uh, so, so it would still be my work, but, but it, in the end, it would be a seamless story uh, visually, yeah. you know, with its own kind of uh, crossbred style. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't want people thinking about who drew what. Sure. We wanted them to just read the story and, and enjoy it and laugh at the jokes. Between the two of you, uh, who has the, the bigger Kurtzman influence, you think? Oh, just because I feel a lot of I feel a lot of Kurtzman in this in a lot of ways, you know. Just like... I think we were both. I've been influenced. I was influenced more and more by Kurtzman as I went along, yeah. uh, and and really began appreciating his simplest stuff, yeah. which turned out to always be labored over yeah. at, at a surprising level. Uh, uh, Gilbert was, I can only guess it. Kurtzman's influence on him yeah. since he actually worked under Kurtzman yeah. oh, on projects. That. Yeah, I think. Okay. Uh, I mean, not doing things directly with him, but sure. for, you know, like the magazines he was. Oh, okay. Nice. Well, there you go. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I came to uh, really. Uh, did just be totally impressed. I was lucky enough in the oh earlier mid nineteen nineties to be visiting Kevin Eastman in Northampton, Massachusetts, and uh, Dennis Kitchen had moved there and and had a really nice setup. Uh, uh, there, this was Tundra was still a concern and all that, right. I think. But uh, Dennis had started agenting, and I was there. He had, uh, Harvey had just died, and his uh, widow had sent all of Harvey's archives, comic archive, art archives mm -hmm. on to Dennis mm -hmm. to sort out and see what was what right and i was there the night uh dennis uh opened them up and they're like they were like wooden crates the size bigger than a fridge like a like a a, a restaurant freezer would be it except they were full of artwork uh-huh and that's where uh, we were both just agog going through this stuff because he collected everything and mm. kept it. There were not just the story or, or uh, with like the printed version and yeah. all that, but the initial idea on a, 
on a lunch napkin that went to a little bit of more doodles and then uh -huh. like everything yeah. in order you know it didn't have to be any sorting yeah. uh and not just his work he went around the ec offices grabbing everything everybody else was discarded going oh, through man. their waste baskets yeah. like smoothing drawings out and roughs and wow. tracings and keeping those in order wow. yeah <laughs> it was awesome and you know but uh, seeing that kind of thing you know with you've got to actually we've got to see how how these things de were developed by, yeah. by the artists and, yeah. and you know step by step it was it was incredible uh and and that just left me going wow harvey kurtzman yeah yeah cool but you know i, I it's kind of like art spiegelman uh you know you see you see their work and it's deceptively simple, yeah. but they've labored and yeah. thought about every casual line yeah. in it, which isn't casual at all. I've, I've always thought of Kurtzman as a very detailed artist yeah. when I think yeah. about it, because even the I look simple at those old ads and, you know, just those, those, those like starchy or whatever, you know, some parody of some, it's just a knockoff bullshit. It's even, you know, yep. but it's so labored over and so detailed and you can see it and i it's incredible and so this book in particular like really makes me think a lot of those old mats uh <laughs> uh you know for, well we put a lot of eye candy and, yeah, and, yeah. and mental candy yeah. in there too yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that was one thing we intentionally made these things uh and and i followed gilbert's cue to have a long shelf life, mm -hmm. which is why 13 issues of the Freak Brothers in a career. Right. You know, like a laughably small number compared to most most titles. Mm -hmm. But they print over and over and over, you know, uh, and they also were designed to translate easy. So right. we stayed away from jokes about real people or politicians or things that could lock them into a, a space the city they lived in looked kind of like san francisco that would might be in any country on the earth just about uh, so that anybody in those places would think the freak brothers are living down the street from where they are yeah uh, uh we stuck to humor that uh you know was was could be translated yeah uh and and if we it couldn't directly be translated we made extra effort to make sure that there was some kind of reference in the country uh it was going to go to that was the equivalent of what we had had so right. that conceptually everything would still work so we, we, I can't say we overthought it because that's a danger too. Mm -hmm. you, you, you'll dry something out if mm -hmm. you do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, but we kept that in uh, as a consideration. Yeah. We, we wanted them to feel universal. And Gilbert from the start, you know, uh, wanted to do a comic strip. So he designed these 
not not a strip strip, but a a continuing uh, uh, property. Uh, so he he modeled them kind of after the not by personality, but by the structure, like of uh, comedy trios, the Three Stooges or the Marx Brothers, or in you know French comics, it would be look feed. Nicolette's, I think, uh, which was a, a comic strip about three uh, hobos, okay. French hobos. So, so that you know, it was like, like I said, a juggling act where uh, you could have all these different interactions because you were moving three things yeah. around in yeah. different combinations. Yeah, it also really works as um as a, a sort of iconic comic strip in that. Each of them has a very distinct silhouette. It's very clear who the characters are at all times. You're never going to be confused between them and anyone else. Yeah, that, that's that's a talent that I I don't think that a lot of people necessarily recognize they need to do right away. Well, no, I mean Gilbert's characters were always weird though and stood out, and I even encountered him long before. Uh, I was seeing him in any underground anything uh, where where his stuff from that he was doing back in Austin was showing up in drag cartoons and, right. and then the follow-up uh, uh, Wonder Warthog uh, magazine a two-issue run which I encountered you know uh, being taken on shopping trips to the grocery store with my mother. It was these things were on the magazine rack right. at the at the supermarket. Not wow. not not at some comic book shop. There were none. It uh, they were probably at newsstands too. But mom didn't take me to the newsstand. Huh. Uh, so you know uh, he stood out he stood out it was just like weird shit and yeah. it was really uh, funny and, yeah. uh, you know uh, and outrageous yeah. uh, so so what's what's your process let's let's stick with idiots abroad okay. maybe what was your process when you started the story i mean do you since you didn't map it all out i'm assuming that you didn't start with the script that you <laughs> that you're starting what you're what are you doing thumbnails and showing them to one another and <laughs> try, try to picture how the how the breakdown works. Well, we don't work like other cartoonists. Sure. That's what I'm <laughs> and that's what I uh, love the gen the genesis of this thing. Like, uh, show them the the first front page uh, of the actual. The, the, yeah, here's the Freak Brothers standing under a, a passenger jet wing on a runway hitchhiking and we had a rough doodle of that thing on on the page you know the comic page and and i was sitting there staring at it and went you know i i can't really draw an accurate jet plane without kind of mentally you know uh memorizing or, or referencing right. an actual one i i could draw something that looks kind of like one right. but it wouldn't it wouldn't really be right and and we sometimes we tried to like make things seem real to anchor the more ridiculous things we put in between layer them with right so 
so I said, you know, we should, I, I need to like see some jets and stuff uh-huh. and, and know what it, the airport looks like and yeah. all that, you know, because I've been through them, but I wasn't thinking about drawing them when right. I was there. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so. I was thinking about catching a jet or getting a drink or sure. looking for luggage. Sure. And it's uh, very different today because you could just Google these things. Right. You know, right. It's a, it's a, every reference you ever needed. But no, that, I mean, back then you had to build up, uh, you know, piles of magazines yeah. and National Geographic's and God knows what. Yeah, yeah. And file cabinets worth of it. Just in case. But uh, here... Uh, we're sitting there, uh, and we're in our studio. Uh, Ripoff Press is like basically done to two car- you know, resident cartoonists, me and him, and we've got our our studio clubhouse where you know the sign that's put on the door is like cartoonists that work don't disturb, and and people that worked at Ripoff Press would not disturb us <laughs> when that sign was up. Uh, uh, they might have if they had known what we were doing behind there. <laughs> uh, in this instance, Gilbert said, well, let's go to the airport. You know, and I went, great. You know, so I found myself, we spent the next three days go, uh, out at SFO just wandering around, yeah. uh, soaking up the ambiance. Yeah. Gilbert wouldn't let me draw anything or take photos. He just wanted us to feel like the airport <laughs> and and so we did that you know and we ate lunch out there we got stoned in the parking lot we'd go back into the airport and stare at the jets and 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 we returned to the office and neither of us could still draw a fucking plane <laughs> so so then we spent days going to every model shop in the Bay Area and buying armloads of plastic model kits of all kinds of airplanes and boats and whatever struck our fancy. And then like a couple of 10-year-olds, we sat up in the office getting stoned and putting these models together Uh instead of doing anything to advance the strip. You know, and, and the president of the company, you know, was what? (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, it's, we're doing research. <laughs> so when uh, when we couldn't uh, go any further and we we ran out of excuses, we finally started drawing. And uh, just you know, uh, but but at that point we we had a basic idea. You know, what we had actually been doing all that time was thinking about the story. Sure, sure. Uh, sure. while we were building the models and just hanging out. So uh, in a way, we actually were uh-huh. working and uh, and began advancing the story. You know, we, we had the jets down, we had the airport down, we put them on planes. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have to look up the destination, uh, you know, once we, uh, okay, one's going to South America, we're going to find some thing in South America we want to draw or this or that and and then the next step yeah entered in but so but the so if you're not writing out a script then well we kind of had these loose things I'm not sure I could even call them a script yeah. sometimes yeah. but they were notes right uh, you know uh, that kind of slowly coalesced 
into a page, yeah. you know, when it came time to actually put something down on the page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Gilbert would tweak dialogue and things yeah. uh, if it was, uh, if he had something in mind or if, uh, or to make it fit more into what his idea of how a, uh, one of the Freak Brothers would say something. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, it might be the same sentiment that we wrote or, or or agreed on, but he'd finalize that yeah. and then had the last word because he was lettering, like lettering it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you know, I didn't have any problem with that because yeah. uh, uh, you know, working with him is a learning experience even now. Yeah. Although we haven't directly worked in a room together quite some time. Right. The last story we did together was in 2014, and we were separated by a continent or yeah. in an ocean. So. Yeah. Did you talk on the phone or something? On that one? Uh, no. Uh, and on, on working on the Idiots Abroad rarely which is why i uh simply because i think uh the phone rates were ferocious sure. back then and uh, all the more so between france and europe where the uh dollar was heavily devalued in the 1980s so if you called the united states uh from uh Paris, you had to sit there at Gilbert's house. You used a stopwatch because you were being charged uh, every five seconds. Yeah. So yeah. timing, you know, you weren't just like, oh, well, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. See any TV? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. look, a $300 phone call discussing TV. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just trying to really wrap my head around how how you guys work together, especially when the lettering was done before the final art, right? Well, in that case, it was done on the page. Yeah. Uh, in the case of uh, where the stories that Dave and I would do, yeah. they were cut out, and we had to figure out the mm -hmm. balloons and glue them down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it worked. Uh, people uh, to this day think Gilbert drew on, all on these things. Uh, that Dave and I did. Yeah. So, uh, so it turned out we were right about taking cues from the handwriting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's you know you don't run into that on on mainstream books because no, like, professional letters are, are now uh, programs are are yeah. doing the lettering. Yeah. Well, and they're all they're all separate layers of the art anyway. Yeah. 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 These days, yeah. I, I prefer hand lettering though. I mean, there's there's just there's something about hand lettering yep. that uh, that's special. I think. It's warmer, uh, uh, less cold, yeah. Uh, yeah. And integrated with the art too, and particularly uh, you you start getting special effects and things like that, you know. And there's a lot of really funny, just you know, little background noises and stuff that happen in the art and Freak Brothers. Uh, that that's just uh, hell of entertaining, I think. Um, let me, uh, let me see. Does anybody here have any questions before I, who else has a question? Please ask. Um, 
Well, one thing I didn't get is why are they going to Columbia to get views? They probably because that was too easy and they're the freak brothers who knew that they had money for plane tickets <laughs> that must have been the rent money <laughs> i was kind of wondering what like when they got to columbia how they were going to buy the weeds since they'd spent all the money they're not forward thinkers <laughs> uh they they kind of operate the way we do when it comes to writing a story <laughs> Well, if Columbia has bunches of weed, we'll just find some when we're there. Uh -huh. Which kind of worked for me wherever I went. There was always marijuana without me having to look for it. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that was because you worked in the Freak Brothers or despite of it? Uh, sometimes both. Yeah. Uh -huh. At the same time, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one time. What do you hope people walk away with after reading the Freak Brothers? Any of the Freak Brothers? Yeah. Oh, a good laugh. Uh, maybe some insight. Uh, not as much as uh, they once might have held because the characters we're describing and the times really have shifted a bit. But still, some of the some of the reactions are are uh, universal and carry from generation to generation, and certainly uh, more so among, say, marijuana smokers. No matter what era they're from, uh, you could go back in time and see that that's so. Uh, it's a it's a distinct culture and mindset. Uh, no matter how much commercialization tries to be layered on it, it always comes down to an individual's brain being uh, having its chemi chemistry messed with. What, what if, if let's narrow his question a little more? What what would you like people to take away from it? It's abroad. Hmm. Is that different than the the strip itself? Well, an entertaining read. Uh, an adventure story, uh, uh, a cautionary tale not to act like these guys. Yeah. Uh, not that you could, you'd probably die or be in prison quickly. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, kind of heavy political stuff yeah. in here, you know, stuff about religion that, that, you know, it gets touched on in, in other Freak Brother stories, but this is, I don't know, this is kind of a special opus to me. Well, I mean, I had an influence on it, so yeah. I guess some of that psychology comes from me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I stop it. What kind of comic do I like to read? Uh, uh, it's hard a hard one for me to answer because yeah. I have fairly eclectic tastes, and over time I've realized that sometimes the things I used to hate, I love the most, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, as my own attention shifts and, and uh, changes, yeah. so. Uh, but I think there's some real cultural critique in here, and I yeah, think, we put that in. You know, I, I mean, you know, we were dealing with subjects that, uh, you know, we used MacGuffins that had political weight, and a MacGuffin is a device uh, that's 
drives a story forward, but isn't necessarily anything uh, a reader or a viewer cares about. It's a, dev a, a story device. And, and here, uh, you know, there's a nuclear bomb hidden in a soccer ball. Spoiler alert <laughs> for the 30-year-old book. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, the initial joke uh, that's mildly in one direction leads you deeper and deeper into that area. Uh, you know, if, if one guy gets rich and starts a religious cult, uh, then, you know, that it's easy to think of, you know, well, and then he enslaves his old friends, right. you know, literally. Uh, or this or that. Uh, and it's also, you know, manipulating the characters and, and pushing them. And I mean, one of the things almost any cartoonist does is create a character and then torment them. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. <laughs> no matter whether you love the character or hate them, you know, you, you put them through the paces uh, and do things to them that you wouldn't do to your friends. Uh, mostly <laughs> uh you know so you know and the, the end point is to still entertain people sure 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 uh as, as and and uh in a way that you know and we wanted to give them a story that they'd read more than once yeah. you know not a just a bowl of popcorn they're like uh, so, so let's talk about something like, say, Phineas uh, founding the religion, enslaving his friends. At what point did you come up with that? Because that's kind of kind of the denouement of the story in a way. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it was a good way to, you know, uh, they were all off on their own paths that yeah. had to slowly come together and intertwine, uh, which was deliberate on our part. You yeah. know, we. We kicked them over the cliff randomly, yeah. but after they were falling, we decided to start steering them towards definitive X's below yeah. uh, so that they'd hit exactly the way we want them yeah. to, uh, even though we didn't know where they were going at first. Uh, it, it, with the church, uh, well, at that point, I, I had already become deeply involved in uh, the, another uh, one of my day jobs, Church of the Subgenius, right. and had re quickly recruited almost all the cartoonists and people I knew uh, who didn't resist one bit, which is the sign of a good cult. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to hold people captive. They willingly fall into your uh, trap. And Gilbert was among those, uh, because uh, how could he resist? Uh, we even grabbed Crumb. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Gilbert couldn't put Church of the Subgenius in, in our story. Sure. Uh, so, so he uh, kind of like, uh, you know, initiated this uh, strain of fundaligionism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but informed with the same type of cynical sure. attitude that yeah. that the other other uh, train uh, was using. Mm -hmm. 
and and only you know this one was suited to uh, our 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 needs in in doing this book yeah uh, the subgenius stuff is open ended and sure. doesn't require a denouement um it was five six years altogether that yeah. these three issues came out yeah um that's that's a long time to be telling a, a single story yeah it is that, you, uh, that you're not sure where it's going necessarily and we were doing all these other things in yeah. between all that yeah. so uh th it wasn't like we were working on it the solid sure. six years uh, I, we, it kind of helped I mean, you know, you you don't. There was a certain pressure. It wasn't like the old days. Yeah. You know, uh, Rip Off Press was dependent upon this stuff, and we really, you know, uh, we our promise to the readers was we'll actually tell you how it ends. Mm -hmm. So we had to. Uh, but uh, even so, uh, we're we're you know. Uh, it was hard work, and sometimes it really was like round the clock, you know, on certain aspects of it, especially uh, in uh, when the black and white was all done and it came time to do the color. Uh, the first two issues, seven and eight, uh, the first two parts of the, of the story yeah. were done. Uh, the color was produced by me doing detailed uh, color roughs yeah. on, on vellum uh, in Prismacolor and then uh, as guides for uh, a cartoonist in his own right uh, an excellent artist uh, Guy Colwell who had mastered the art of painted gray scale color separations yeah. So he would translate the color roughs into four paintings that he'd make. It was fast too, faster than me. Uh, and and they it was really accurate. He'd capture, you know, the proofs in the book, he'd capture all these uh, colors and details that I I was feeding him. Yeah. Uh, and then when it came time for the third chapter. Guy went on a peace march for months, <laughs> and he wasn't there. And I sure couldn't knock out uh, these. I mean, I could, right. but it would take me months to come up to that speed, yeah. you know, for doing this really abstract thinking. You're, sure. you're, you're looking at a color and deciding the three different gray tones that would turn into color further on down yeah. the line yeah. uh and and that requires you you don't get that without experience yeah uh so instead i had to uh i took acetate and did full color gouache paintings okay. of each page yeah. which were then to match the type of color guy had already right. done right <laughs> and that that was like a solid month of 12 hour days with no days off Wow! to, to do 30 pages of yeah. that. Uh, it might've taken a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, you can see, you can see the difference between the first two parts and, and the third part. Um, 
it's richer, kind of. Yeah, well, there's one less step in translation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really, I wonder about, like, pages, for example, like these. Where... This? Gilbert was just trying to see how many words he could fit on a okay. page. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that was like almost 700 words on this page. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of insane. Why? Yeah, Just because. Make no. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it no, would make the drawing faster because you can see here's a here's panels where the characters are like an eighth of an inch tall and 65% uh, of the panel is dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> But there, but there's there like, so many changes and so many things in each. I, I, oh, I, I don't think it it's, took it's, as long to draw. Yeah, longer. Yeah, it's it's like a couple Cause, of. Because you have to put visual information in among these. Well, here's where hundreds I, of words. I've always tripped up by our guarantee to have a crowd scene in every panel. Uh, but I think in this this place, it, it really did serve a a, a background way of emphasizing what was going on here right. this is because this is representing a speed education given yeah. to uh two of the freak brothers by yeah. the third yeah. uh where where lots of information is pounded into their heads yeah. so the dense panel uh is reminiscent of that even yeah. though even though it wasn't uh directly like plan that way i love the fact that it was just an experiment to see how many words you could fit in well you know <laughs> uh, even i was going gilbert what the hell are you doing here and he said well i just wanted you know <laughs> yeah. it's crazy yeah and then and then you know like color wise pages like this one i really love just the psychedelic you know flying in the plane yeah that's a lot of my art yeah. in fact that's all mostly me there yeah and that's where the models came in handy right. because we had a, a a Russian MIG right there, even and even had the instructions so I could see what it looked like on the inside. Yeah, crazy. This is crazy work, man. I, I, it, this is just so, like, it still is is fantastic now, you know. And and well, it's, thank you. It, it's hard to come up with things that hold up uh, like that. I think you know. Uh, I'm, I, I, you understand why Fanographics led with this story. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you put in labor and it shows. Yeah. Uh, but not, it doesn't always pay off. It has to be thoughtful labor. Yeah. It's really easy to fill pages up with ink lines. Right. And come up with nothing. Right. Uh, and and a whole lot of comic product is like that. It's true. Uh, well, you're talking about product too, right? Right. Uh, and first. you know, and I don't have a problem with that because there's an audience for that, and uh, and, and it fills what they're after. Yeah. Uh, you know, a variety. So I don't expect our readers to like be big Wolverine fans, for instance. But you never know. <laughs> but they can read both titles. Yeah, exactly. Some, <laughs> some people read. I, you know, it was always a thing that I said to people that, like, 
back in the day, everybody who read Love and Rockets, every single one of them also read at least one superhero comic. You know, it just it's just how it works, man. People like the form, they like the medium, you know. Um, any other questions from please? When you think back over all of the years that you've collaborated with Gilbert, um, how like how did y'all how did that evolve like from when you started to well, I don't go to Europe as much as I used to, <laughs> and the publisher doesn't pay for it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I mean, it kind of evolved along with uh, the way the strip was done. I mean. I don't know what it would be like if Gilbert hadn't moved to Europe. Uh, who knows? Uh, and uh, if Gilbert hadn't decided to switch gears, I might still be going over there and, and working on the thing. But uh, at, at some point in the 90s, he switched gears to not quite dead. Uh, and, he, uh, and right at the point, uh, we started working with a German cartoonist friend of ours, uh, a famous uh, cartoonist and creator in its own right in Germany, a fellow named Gerhard Seifried, uh, who I had made friends with back in the 70s. Uh, it was basically at that time called the Robert Crumb of, of Germany. Uh, even though no American had ever heard of him back then. But anyway, uh, I went over to Europe on my own dime and spent two or three months there with Gerhard and Gilbert traveling around Europe like the Freak Brothers, working on a, working out a storyline for another 100-page story called Planet of the Cops. And... Uh, we got the, the whole story blocked out, had a pile of sketches like this, and even started working a bunch of pages, and Gilbert suddenly killed the project and said it was too political and unrealistic. Wow. Uh, and, and, and that was that. And right. we, okay. Uh, and, and the odd part is that in the ensuing time, uh, that Gilbert did that back in the early 90s. Almost everything in that story has come true. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that always the way, though? Uh, it was Isn't this elaborate, uh, elaborately worked out plot uh, where the Freak Brothers were chased all over Europe by uh, a, a, a prescient version of Homeland Security. For being the greatest scoff laws in America, and they end up being put on trial for their lives after being finally captured. And uh, except the jury is America, it's like the internet before the internet, and everybody gets to vote on whether they're guilty or not. And uh, but at the very last second, when it looks like they're going to be convicted and executed, Phineas breaks down into some, again, some long uh, hysterical plea for uh, legalizing hemp. 
which somehow convinces everyone that they can solve all the world's problems by legalizing hemp. So instead of uh, being executed, they're hailed as heroes. And hemp is planted everywhere. But just as the crops are about to be harvested, all the hippies break down the fences and smoke all the hemp. And the economy crashes and everyone loses their jobs. And the Freak Brothers end up having to hide in Serbia somewhere. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, Gerhard and I thought it was good. <laughs> Planet of the Cops. Uh, Gilbert has some of it. I have some, a little bit. Gerhard might have a little bit. I have some story notes. Uh, and and just like in the Idiots Abroad, we spent what I thought was way too much time in French model shops. And Gilbert even went out and bought a French barge model, a canal barge, because we decided Freak Brothers were going to live on it. So he bought this model, this big, that had to be assembled, you know, like it was wood pieces, not plastic, you know, an actual old, old style boat model where you have to sit there and thread, you know, use thread. And I'm not sure if Gilbert ever built it. He might have. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think it would have been good, but who knows? <laughs> it's, I, I just, I, I, it's almost inconceivable to me that there's a story out there that's a hundred page story that was well into production. That yeah, isn't well, I had another graphic novel uh, that was slated for production that got killed off by my sales tax case in the nineties. Yeah, uh, that I co-wrote with. Uh, film director and friend Alex Cox and his uh, one of the actors he worked with a fellow named Dick Rude who was in Repo Man yeah. and uh, it was called 1963 and a half and it was a science fiction story about the Kennedy assassination and alien invasions yeah. and and was going to be an eight, eight book uh, that 200 page uh, graphic novel. Okay. And, you know, uh, going in, the numbers were all great. We were all going to make good money. We made good money writing the story, had a contract, and then I got, I couldn't work on it for a number of years. Yeah. And all the economics of comic field shifted. And, it, that, it, and by then it was like, I can't. At the speed I work, I can't. This can't make money. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll starve to death working on it. Uh, so, so that project got canned. And in the ensuing time, uh, almost every one of our jokes and con concepts had been arrived at by other people along the way. Right. We just happened to think, you know, the way our minds work, we arrived on these weird points first, yeah. uh, and. But, you know, once they start showing up in other people's work, and they didn't take them from us, yeah, you know, sure there, there weren't the scripts floating yeah, yeah. around or yeah. anything. They just, uh, you know, 
oh yeah, let's do that. And it's like, you know, oh, so instead of inventing peanut butter and jelly, this guy got the opportunity. What can you do? Yeah. And and now I'm not so sure, sure uh, some of the stuff would work as well because right. of other things that have shifted in the culture. Right. Uh, politically and socially. So, you know, it, it probably would have been well received back then. Yeah. But not reprinted 30 years later yeah, like yeah. this. Yeah. Wow, two major projects that. that, that yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Huh. Okay. Well, you, you want to? Yeah. The question. Uh, sure. I was just going to ask about uh, without spoiling the end. Uh, it ends with a very. Uh, it's thirty-three years old. We can spoil so, the well, end at this point. Was Rosebud was a sled. That, that punchline. Uh, was that thought about in the beginning? Like they're never going to make it to where they were originally planning to go, or was that part of the, the original idea, or was that? Could you explain that again? Uh, uh, no. Well, they they did kind of end up back in South America at that volcano uh, that blows up. Uh, so. But certainly not by any route that getting on a plane to Columbia, uh, uh, an old Connie uh, private air, airline. To... If, if, if I can, I think what he's asking is, is the last the last oh, joke is the... Herbert. Yeah, oh, right. Herbert's still there, which was set yeah, up, yeah, yeah, set up yeah, like that's, 40 pages before. That, that, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. The, the fool is still waiting for them to bust them. Yeah. So <laughs> even though the, the whole rest of the story hadn't been written, was was that part always kind of yeah yeah nice? I mean, I had a nor, writing jokes about Norbert the Narcus fun because who doesn't like to torture a cop like that? <laughs> or or have a, more to the point, have him torture himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, did you have a follow up? Yeah, very good. Um, I want to ask you about the 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 case of the board um, of equalization, and oh. and sort of how that came about, uh, what their thinking was with that. There was a scene in Terry Gilliam's Brazil where a fly falls into a printer that's printing out a arrest order for a guy named uh, Tuttle. And instead, the, t the fly falls into the printer and a bee is printed and a man named Buttle is arrested and killed instead. And that's how I got sort of caught up with the, bee, uh, the Board of Equalization in California. Was the state agency uh, the former state agency in charge of collecting sales tax and use tax on business transactions or allowing them to be used for as deductions or not uh, taxed, as it were. And I filed uh, taxes with them, uh, because, uh, returns with them, because I sell artwork and this and that. Uh, but I had never... 
collected royalty uh, uh, sales tax on my royalties, which are uh, earned through intellectual uh, authors' uh, rights, intangible and untaxable. They're taxed as income, but they're not a sales tax transaction because they're considered intangible, your ideas. Uh, And so I reported my royalty income for comics that year, which I was fairly low, fourteen hundred dollars. Uh, and they came back with a with an audit and said, "No, uh, you actually owe us ninety taxes on ninety four thousand dollars of income." And I went, "Say what?" Mm-hmm. And their computer had replaced a one with a nine. So, uh, so that made it enough money for them to suddenly get excited about this. They could get some money out of me. And I said, well, okay, no, here's what I filed. You can see it's your mistake. I, I only made $1,400 and I owe nothing on it because it's intellectual property. And they said, no, it's not. And I went, what? I said, well, we did make the mistake about the large amount, but... Uh, this isn't intellectual property because all you do is prepare templates for printing manufacturing. I went, huh? That's insane. That's an insane uh, statement for them to make. Uh, but they, it's one they've tried in other areas, as I quickly learned. They tried the same thing with the music industry back in 1968 on Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and said, when you give your master recording tape, we want all the money that you earned on royalties because you transferred real property to the manufacturer that contained, it's a template for manufacturing records in that instance. The board can separate things out by categories so that they don't have to be consistent with the one next to it that's exactly like it. So they experimented on music and that went nowhere. So they trotted it back out on comics and said, you're not really an author. You're, you're just making these patterns. The, the guy who writes the words is the author. And, and you're not really an author then, even if you write the words, because you wrote the, you drew the pictures too. And I said, the hell with you. I'm not paying this. It's, it's unconstitutional. And we were off to the races uh, because beyond me, which would have been a test case, they were planning on filing, attacking everybody that moved anything related to comics through California in one direction or another. So that literally every newspaper comic, every cartoon in a magazine that was printed or sold in California, all the newspaper comics, all the animated cartoons on TV, they thought they were gonna grab three three to eight billion dollars in new money and they all got bounties personal bounties a portion of that as a reward uh so i had to fight with them for five years in a regulatory dispute it never even was a a a a trial or anything uh we were just fighting over the regulation and whether it applied uh for five years and, uh, expen- and the ACLU with the CBLDF yeah. worked on the defense? Did they fund it all or 
Like how how badly did you have to go out of pocket to? I lost my life savings to that point, spending my own money on, uh, you know, uh, staying alive yeah. because I wasn't able to work while I was dealing with this. Uh, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund uh, got a heavy discount on one of the top sales tax firms in the state that they hired for me. That set them back at least $75,000 at the time a, a real chunk of change uh and the aclu stepped in late in the game and said if this goes to court we're pledging five million dollars for mavritas's uh uh move up the federal court system uh and uh i th their attitude my opponent's attitudes shifted seriously when I walked in with my first set of lawyers that the uh, defense fund gave me because his suit cost more than everybody's income in the room. And they had my tax return. They knew I could not pay for the guy sitting next to me, which meant I was juiced. And they, had, they suddenly took me seriously. Uh, because it meant I had friends that could pay for these things. Yeah. And along the way, uh, I picked up two more uh, uh, corporate law firms, uh, top, top shelf uh, outfits. One paid by an anonymous donor from LA, who I suspect is a famous uh, TV produ production person and or company and another one paid for by the creator syndicate which was also facing an audit and a challenge for their own syndication yeah. uh, from the boe so they were behind me in line yeah. so they were like shoring me up since i was going to have to fall sure. uh, before they could get if i didn't fall yeah. they're free so i ended up with a legal team that when uh when we had a phone uh meeting I wasn't allowed to say hello or ask them how they were because they, they somebody ran the numbers and said to say hello to each other would cost your defense fund three thousand dollars. <laughs> so we're just going to get right to it. <laughs> uh, and in the end, what what won the case was uh, not all this uh, legal power, which would have come in handy in a courtroom. But me uh, just going crazy and working on drumming up a PR campaign to paint uh, the board as uh, the enemies of mankind and all that's good and proper. Uh, and had the help of the media, too, at some point when they began picking up on, on the case of it. The laugh tags. Meet the man that wants to kill Snoopy. You know, yeah. and, and these guys all ran for office. They had they were elected because nobody knew what they did or who they were. So they just got ticked off. They almost never had opponents in their campaigns. And all of a sudden, cartoonists were like doing editorial cartoons, making fun of them and drawing their faces and, and doing TV stories about them. And they knew their careers were just going to go in the toilet. If, if they didn't back off. So at my final uh, final uh, uh, appeal, uh, they folded. And, and the head lawyer for the state 
a guy with hair longer than freewheeling Franklin's uh, <laughs> who had come after me viciously. Uh, it, in, in one split second, once they made that ruling, he was now like arguing like in favor of all my concepts and how, uh, how I was a brilliant person. And then the weirdest part of all was the staffs of the people who were trying to do this, this scheme all came up to me with Freak Brother comics for me to autograph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> the reason not to be gracious. Except for the one guy who said, Marius is little better than a pornographer. <laughs> well, he was the only no vote, so, you know. I mean, one one of the things I did was I left them a door open. I, you know, I said, "Look, I, you know," uh, and without saying it directly, "Look, I backed you into, I painted you into a corner. You you guys can't escape from this, and I'm going to destroy you because I don't have a job anymore. You've made it so that all my only purpose in life is to bring you down to my level, or." you can go through this door I cut in the wall that's marked hero of the day. Because I don't even care about being a hero. You can be the hero. Just agree with me. And all this will go away. And then I uh, worked with the Graphic Artists Guild in the AFL-CIO after we got the case one to put it into uh, regulations. So they couldn't test this out on anybody else right. in publishing uh, to seal it. You know, okay, here's it stated so there's no room for interpretation. Yeah. So we took care of that. Just in time for the internet to show up and get rid of all of that because now nothing was tangibly transmitted or transferred. Right. Everything became digital. Right. And there's no sales tax on... Well, you couldn't have known that. I mean, it, no, 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 it, it had to be life. done. Yeah. Uh, and besides, I was stapled to the firing squad wall. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, you're kind of cynical about uh, about civilization sometimes, I, I see. Uh, <laughs> Growing up in Akron will do that. Yeah, no, sure. No, <laughs> I, completely, completely fucking understandable. But uh, I wonder if if the fact that justice actually won, like ease that cynicism at all? Well, a little bit, and it depends how you edit it, like the New York Times did uh, with their follow-up on the case where I, I proclaimed to them, the system works, uh, exclamation point. As long as you, you're backed by powerful law firms paid for by rich people. They left that part so, of yeah. the quote off. Right, right. So I had people going, well, you certainly turned into a Pollyanna about the system. And I went, well, not really. <laughs> but, I mean, it's true. Uh, the board, the government is constrained in many cases uh, to give you enough rope to hang yourself. If, if if that's what you want. Uh, but they also give you steps to, you know, uh, 
argue against that. Uh, and, and circumstances in the players are what determines how much of that is according to the way things are supposed to be and how they actually are more often than not, which is not according to how it's supposed to go. Uh, and, and the reasons for that are as varied as the number of people there are. So, uh, but in this case, it worked. I mean, I, I was lucky uh, that the comic industry was as, uh, had as much bank as it did at the time the case started, you know, because in the time my case unfolded, it went from a $3 billion a year industry to Marvel Comics collapsing. Right. And in fact, I was trying to get a letter of support. I, I Right at the very end, I was still racking up uh, support from different groups and people to use in a court fight. So I had like a sheath of letters and things from all kinds of people, you know, like from Ray Bradbury, from children's library associations, from uh, to, to pull out uh, should I need it. But, and now I forgot where I was going with this. Uh, Oh, uh, well, I called Marvel Comics for one, and and for a month, the person I talked to the day before had been laid off or fired, and I was speaking to a new person every single day uh, until I got to the head of Marvel, who was the only, he even got rid of his secretary at that point. It was sitting in the empty office by himself. Uh, that was, I forget his name, uh, but uh, he managed to pawn the company off on somebody that re, uh, re, re-energized it. But, you know, it was kind of like weird. Uh, you know, you think, you know, oh, Marvel, the bullpen, this or that. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, I had this image of this, like, like an office floor after the dot-com boom blew out you know it's like all this furniture with nobody sitting in it <laughs> you know and the phones removed and yeah wow. so so that was going on you know so 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 you know if the timing had been different uh, the defense fund wouldn't have been there yeah. or uh, yeah. rich cartoonist a wouldn't have stepped in or this or that uh because I we weren't fighting over that much money, like about oh nine hundred dollars in sure. all. But but the but the downward effect that really right. Happened, well, they would have tur- they would have turned around and and just started hammering people, starting with the people that I did business with, yeah. uh, and one of those would have been Image Comics, yeah. who got uh, suddenly panicked when yeah. I pointed out. After they said, Don't, we're too busy making money. And I went, well, that's good because you're going to need it to pay your taxes once I lose. Yeah. And they went, what do you mean? Do you know, you don't, you know, I said, I worked for you. I did a page in Spawn. Uh, if it had been in somebody else, you know, because the solutions would, were easy to pass it on to somebody else, pay the small bill and let the next person take it in the face or uh, 
worse yet, you know, self-published people. It would have wiped out anybody self-publishing. Uh, and, and But the real uh, part that I really objected to, and this is where the ACLU came in and the First Amendment aspects, were that this, the sales tax board is basically setting up their license, which is required uh, by anyone collecting or sales tax on their behalf to become an author's license. Yeah. And the, the board could take it away from you. And suddenly you wouldn't, and if you lost that license, you wouldn't be able to sell your work and make a living from it. Uh, clearly unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court has ruled several times in the past in other cases precisely that point. And the board was just, we don't have to listen to that. In a court, you do. Uh, which is why they didn't want me to go near a courtroom. Uh, because another case coming up right behind mine did get into the federal courtroom and the federal judge just reamed them a new one. Uh, you know, so they lucked out. And and then they became so incompetent and so hated that the state just like destroyed them and re rebooted the whole thing and moved the power to to do all this stuff to some other group that wasn't as as random. Because they evolved. I mean, the case right before my final hearing was a, an argument about whether they should have sales tax on emu meat and if that would discourage the uh, growing emu industry, right. which you've noticed everybody's eating emu meat now. <laughs> uh, well, okay, it it did make me go right. buy some. I, I didn't care for it. Um, all right, so let's start to wrap this up. I got I got sort of two more questions. My final two questions are like my first question. They're the same for every interview. Uh, the first one is, is are you working on anything? Is there anything that you can plug that you want to plug that that we can see your work again? Uh, are you retired at this point? What's, <laughs> what's your dealio, buddy? Oh, well, I'm a low-income artist uh, who's uh, slowly... Uh, doing gallery art yeah. uh, and, and uh, slowly putting together an art book for Santa Graphics okay. and whatever other projects might kick into my path. Yeah. With no specific comics stuff? No, I don't see, uh, I mean, what gets printed now. I mean, nothing in the comic book form in the alternative, you know, yeah. like, a, at a, and even if it was, who, there's no focused audience to consume it. Right. Uh, and I work so slowly by myself that doing a graphic novel uh, would just be a suicidal slog. Yeah. Uh, I'm 70 years old, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so paintings and yeah. conceptual art and yeah. Understandable. this and that. 
Uh, uh, I was just sort of hoping that you might have had something that you've been taking. Yeah, yeah, with. yeah, no. Yeah, uh, like, a big reveal. Oh, well, uh, this is a good time to announce my... Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for, My you know. plan to dominate the planet and bend every creature to my will <laughs> through that one... Uh, one... That. That's what I'm trying to say. We'd be done with that. <laughs> uh, all right, well, so, and then and then the last question is, is we do have a lot of people who... Um, who because somewhere in our 250th interview somewhere like that um so uh we have you know a lot of people who watch this who want to be cartoonists themselves uh and the thing i hear all the time from want to be cartoonists is how do i start what do i do what wh how do i make comics uh so if you someone if some young person came up to you and said mr Reedy, sir how do i make comics what would you what would you say? What would what would pop into your head? Get your parents to throw you out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> Barring that, uh, you know, pay attention to uh, them. Uh, expand your horizons beyond beyond comics so that they inform your comics. Uh, read comics. Uh, look at them. Think about them. Uh, Uh, the routes to actually getting published are a bit different than like, like, all right. My first comic, Jay Kinney and I were doing this uh, single panel conspiracy cartoons for underground newspapers and alternative press. Uh, one panel, one little conspiracy, one joke. Yeah. Uh, and we, after we did a few for uh, the Berkeley Barb and, and uh, the Realist, uh, we thought, well, maybe we could get into ripoff syndicate, you know, uh, get paid to do these things and then collect them into a comic book. And I thought, great. Uh, so, uh, and this is how I met Gilbert. Uh, we went, Jake Kinney and I w went down to Rip Off Press, uh, got our pitch practice. Uh, I brought every piece of paper I had ever scribbled on in my entire life in this 300 pound portfolio and uh, went up to see Gilbert Shelton. And he, Gilbert was, uh, I was in awe, you know, and he was casually playing pool and smoking a joint and drinking a beer while we were talking to him. We, Jay and I, like, uh, give him our pitch. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and I went, what? And he goes, we'll, we'll print it. And you're like, okay, we'll, we'll get the contract. And uh, that's that. You know, and he went back to playing pool. And Jay and I left. And I, uh, I before that, I don't you want to look at my art? Nah. If Jay says you can draw, you can draw. <laughs> you know, and I kind of went out feeling elated and depressed at the same time. You know, it's like that was too easy. <laughs> but that's all it took in my case. Of course, I, I spent thousands of hours sure. doodling sure, and sure, drawing sure. and, you know, all the things that go into that memorizing all those comic books that my parents burned yeah. so that even though they burned them, they were still here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. 
I, I love it. I, I love this book. I, I really do. I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to come. Well, and, thank you for having oh, me. Of course, man. Of course. I, it, I don't know. As I said, this, this holds up. There's not very much stuff from 33 years ago that really holds up. I got to say, uh, you know, it's, it's weird. There's, there's stuff from like 60 years ago that holds up, you know, but not so much stuff from like 30, 40 well, years ago. Like can't always predict it. Doesn't age right, you know. And this does. I don't know. Well, read the uh, Freak Brothers story. The Freak Brothers in the 21st century. A lot of it's uncomfortably came true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But coming true isn't the same thing as holding up. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. So, so yes, no, thank you for, for making this. And, and really, this is, as I said at the beginning of this, this to me is kind of the definition of a comics masterpiece. Uh, if you're sitting and watching at home, you know. Praise Gilbert, too. Praise Gilbert, too, yeah. And, you know, if you were to, to buy a copy from us, uh, maybe Ben will put the web store up at the bottom of, of the screen. Uh, all of every copy that we have also comes with a, uh, a signed book plate by both Gilbert uh, and, uh, and Paul, which is kind of amazing actually you know uh these are from france so uh yeah so that's that's pretty cool uh a little bit of uh, other business i just want to mention that um you know we have two other clubs uh one is the kids club um and that meeting is happening on sunday um for the book squire uh sarah alpha game and nadia shamas uh are the creators it's, it's Sarah who's here, right? Sarah, Sarah is going to be here in person, and Nadia will be on, on a video call. Uh, so that'll be this Sunday morning. Uh, and then next Wednesday is the regular, it's the new book, Adult Club. Uh, and the book is Nice House on the Lake, uh, and author James Tinian, uh, who is pretty much the hottest writer today uh, in mainstream <laughs> comics. Because um, he was writing Batman and a bunch of other stuff. And this is a really spectacular book. So that'll be next Wednesday. Uh, I hope that you guys can come back and make them. And I hope everybody at home gets to watch this. Um, I want to thank uh, I want to thank Ben for running the show. Uh, I want to thank Jordan for being a producer and doing a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. I want to thank uh, Kat and Katie and Zoe, my staff, for being so... So goddamn good at their jobs that I'm allowed to sit around and uh, yeah, exactly. I can I can waste time talking to cartoonists because they they do all the hard work. Um, and uh, I want to thank all the members of the club because uh, if we didn't have you as members, we couldn't possibly do this. In fact, we couldn't still be a comic book store probably anymore. Not in an expensive city like San Francisco. Um, so it really makes a huge difference to us. And I want to thank you, Paul, and I want to thank all creators for making comics because we we wouldn't have a store without you and so you really you, wouldn't right? have it without the readers and readers <laughs> as well yes yes but the dreamers you have to dream the dream well yes everyone is required to do their part exactly exactly <laughs> comics yeah uh right okay Yes, give, 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 give that a round. Yeah, yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Uh, we'll see you again Sunday morning. Take care.